remember thinking to myself, this material, meaning infectious diseases and genital functioning and age, it's it's not that hard. Right. And we at that point it was shrouded in all these Latin terms. You know, even a yeast infection was called manilia, and, right? <laughs> yeah. And maniliasis, maniliasis, and and we called them venereal diseases. All these weird. And I was like, you need to understand it. It's not that hard. I understand what you're doing because I was, I'm 24 now, and I was 18 a couple right. years ago, and I know what's going on. Uh, we need to talk about this. And we, we were the first people to talk about safe sex and stuff like that. And so we just became this safe place to answer, ask your questions. And there was no internet. There was no place that you could not go anywhere you're right. else. There I don't was think nothing. about that. That you today, you're like, this looks weird. You could look yeah. that up. You on could look the everything internet. up. But you know, I still do after dark. You know, the, your mom's yeah. house show, and it's amazing to me how bewildered people still are. Wow. They can get all the information, but they just don't know what to do with it. They can't contextualize it. They can't make sense of it. Hi, I'm Rachel Hollis, and this is my podcast. I spend so many hours of every single week reading and listening to podcasts and watching YouTube videos and trying to find out as much as I can about the world around me. And that's what we do on this show. We talk about everything, life and how to be an entrepreneur. What happened to dinosaurs? What's the best recipe for fried chicken? What's the best plan for intermittent fasting? What's going on with our inner child? How's therapy working out for you? Whatever it is my guests are into, I want to unpack it so that we can all understand. These are conversations. This is information for the curious. This is the Rachel Hollis Podcast. Now, I know we've already had this conversation okay. when we got to meet virtually the first time, yeah. but I found, for lack of a better term, your origin story. Oh, my goodness. Very interesting. Uh, Dan, and, where did you catch it? Where did you, uh, what? So we did that thing for Sirius. Yes. Oh, you, when, and, when yeah. I told it. Yes, okay, when okay. you told it. Because there's many versions out there in the world. And right. I no, your your version, version okay. because I'd never heard that before. Yeah. So could we start there? Yeah, Will yeah you of tell course. Us that That's story? easy. So I was born a spontaneous birth in 1950. No, uh, so <laughs> let's go all the way back. So I am John Q. Medical student here in Pasadena. You grew up here. Yeah. Oh, I well, I went know to college that. in New England. Okay. And I came back out here and went to USC Medical School. And lo and behold, I, I didn't understand, didn't know this until I got here. All the medical students at SC lived in Pasadena, South Pasadena. So now I'm back in Pasadena. So here I was, back in Pasadena, third, fourth year medical student. Uh, you know, back in 1983, we were mostly, almost every day, dealing with HIV and AIDS. Well, we didn't actually have even the term HIV yet. Right. We just stopped calling it GRIDS, and we're starting to call it AIDS. And I lived near a radio station, which had just overnight become this smash hit in Los Angeles. Did you ever, did you grow up around here? Um, I grew up in Bakersfield, okay, so and I, I lived in Glendale for about 10 years. Okay, yeah. so when? Up until four years ago. Okay, so in the 60s and 70s, the dominant radio station in Los Angeles was KLOS okay. and, and KMET. Those were the two rock stations. Overnight, K-Rock came out of oh, nowhere. absolutely. Out of nowhere. It okay. was this little pri pirate radio station, and it was a block away from my apartment. And people were starting to, from my apartment complex, condo complex, were starting to spend time with people at that radio station that was sort of the place to go and hang out. And a friend of mine called me one day. It was like end of my third year of medical school. And he goes, you know, the radio station, you know, they, we were all like within the, that six month period, it started listening to this radio station, the new wave music had hit. And uh, 
He's like, yeah, I'm aware of it. He, he went on to tell me the story about how these two guys had this show in the middle of the night where they'd open the phone lines and started talking about relationships and things. But they, um, the program director wanted them to make it a community service show. They couldn't figure out how to do this. So this friend of mine said, oh, this Pinsky's in medical school. You could do a segment. He pitches me. You could do a segment called Ask a Surgeon. You'll use big words. It'll be really funny. I was like, <laughs> what? Like, what are you talking about? I was persuaded to meet the guy that was in charge of it at the time. He said, come on up. Uh, I brought my infectious disease and gynecology text with me. I literally came up there with a bunch of big oh textbooks. And was really nervous. I wasn't, you know, I'm a medical student. What am I going to talk to these people? Immediately blown away that here, it was midnight to 3 a.m. on Sunday night at that point. And here were the most important health and medical and relationship questions you can imagine being presented to essentially FM disc jockeys. And I was like, <laughs> what the hell? And, and I discovered quickly, no one had heard of AIDS. No one. They didn't wow. know what that was all about. And I thought, oh my God, I, I've got to keep coming back. And so I kept coming back Sunday nights for 10 years. <laughs> wow. I remember you saying when I heard the story the first time that it wasn't just that you all were just finding out information or just giving it a name. Yeah. You were seeing, I think mm. you said like every patient was dying every day. of this. Every day. Every, every day. day. As a third and fourth year medical student, I was telling people they had six months to live all the time. Wow. And I was never wrong. They'd come in with their first episode of pneumocystis pneumonia and you'd go, we have nothing. Wow. Um, I was there as a resident when the AZT boxes were opened up and we finally had something. I couldn't, it was like a big thing. You know, we had something. We could do something for these, these poor men. And oh my God, it was so dark, so terrible. People don't understand what 100% fatality, 100% fatality means and how awful and how, oh, just, it was mind boggling. And so a dark episode, but. It was a one Anthony Fauci was out there telling young physicians, you've got to educate, you've got to educate, you've got to get out there. And I thought, well, here's, I can do this on the radio. Maybe I'll just start, keep doing this. It's probably the right thing to do. And that's really what motivated me to keep at it. And it was interesting and fun. I met lots of interesting people and, uh, like I said, did it for 10 years thinking I was doing community service. Wow. Did you go midnight to 3 a.m. and sit in a room? I would I would go usually, if I, unless I was on call, I would go in. I wouldn't stay till 3. I would <laughs> I would do like midnight to 2, something okay. like that. And it very quickly switched to 11 to 1 and then finally 10 to 12. Um, it just sort of started getting, you know, for whatever reason, it was getting noticed very fast. Yeah. And uh, at one point... A, about eight years down the line, the there's no there's no rating book on Sunday night, so they, the station had to pay for a special rating book. I forget how they were why they did that, but they did it, and it turned out that one in every three radio in Los Angeles, LA County, and and as far as the reach of the station was, was tuned to this radio show on Sunday night. Wow. So one of every three, which is just Bonkers. like I don't know, it's ever anything's ever been like that. And I remember the program director goes, God, if I, if I need balls, I'd put it on five nights a week. Ah, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to put it on five nights a week. And I thought, oh, crap, how am I going to do this? At that point, I was practicing medicine full time. I was getting up at five in the morning. I was struggling to come home by 10 o'clock at night every day. Weekends, eight-hour days if, if I was off. If I was on, still the same 14, 16-hour days. Wow. I was going to be a cardiologist. That's really the direction I was going. And I started moonlighting at a psychiatric hospital in 1984 and got very fascinated with all that. I was always kind of interested in neuro, neuroscience was sort of my thing in college and I got very interested in that and was spending a lot of time in the drug unit, got very good at drug withdrawal and 
sort of seeing lots of addicts because I was so good at getting people off of, of substances. And I decided not to go down cardiology. I did a chief residency, and then I started teaching, teaching medicine and things for a, few, a while. And I sort of had three careers at once going on. One was a hospital practice, which included critical care. We could do critical care as an internist back then, and I was good at that. That's why I wanted to be a cardiologist. I did outpatient medicine, and I did this. When I, when I finished that by 3 in the afternoon, then I'd go to the psychiatric hospital, and I would do the addiction medicine and the medical care of psychiatric patients. And where and so, was that? energy coming from I, it was it's called work got a name it's called workaholism it was it was uh i think it was a combination kind of an, a, actually really an important question a combination of fear that i would not live up to you know my dad was a doctor and my uncle was a doctor and I oh, okay. so I, there's some some fear there that i wouldn't live up to their you know sort of idea of good but more importantly I was totally bought in to, you remember the way they used to train residents? You know, we, well, these train residents where you never went home essentially. Oh, okay. And I bought into that wholeheartedly, which was, this is an important job. Nothing is more important. The patient comes before everything. I don't care how tired you are. I don't care what else you want to do. You focus on that patient. You there for them all the time. And that was, that was another part of it. I really felt that the caretaking of medicine wasn't being done that well, and I wanted to be a good caretaker also. So I was just always available. Wow. My pager would go off all night long, every night. And but, did you have a family at that point? Were I, you... Well, I was. We, Susan and I really got back together in 1988. Okay. By 90, we were engaged. I'd okay. Say, yeah. And, and so, but I don't know how she put up with it. <laughs> I, I do not, to this day, don't know how the hell she right. She's a very independent person, and, and I, I don't I don't know how she did And then we had triplets. So the, you know, the... the no. Yeah, so the the week that they decided to put the show on five nights a week was the week Susan found out we were, she was pregnant with triplets. Holy And it was crap. she that said, uh, no more community service. You're Now you have a job. If you're out here three <laughs> nights a week, it's very, you go get it. You ask them to pay you. Yeah. Uh, which I went in hat in hand, and I think I got $50 a show for the first Stop time. Stop it. Wait, I didn't understand when you were saying community service that so you were doing it for free. Free. I just, it was just interesting and fun and for different. For a decade. Close to a decade. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So it was when she got pregnant that we really like, you're like even then it was fifty dollars a show. Diapers are expensive. Right. Yeah. And, but there was this seemed to be like it was just an exploration of it. It was interesting yeah. and different. And I was it was it, it it scratched a creative itch that I've always had. And I like public speaking and things yeah. like that. It sort of was this but there's no plan. I, I remember a, a gentleman showed up, you know, for four or five years later that he ended up becoming my manager. And I, the whole time, was like, I don't, I don't know what you're talking about. And he goes, What do you want to be doing in ten years? And I thought, Well, not this, not the radio. <laughs> That'd be weird if I was still doing that. I had no plan. I had no right. continuing with the origin, the 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 psychiatric part. Let me make sure I can get all this together for you. I ended up spending a lot of time down on the drug unit. Now I would I would stay overnight at the psych hospital two nights a week, at least one night a week, maybe two nights a week. And I found myself all the time hanging around the drug unit. I liked the culture there. I liked the patients. I liked the staff. I was good at getting people off drugs and had no understanding of addiction or treatment addiction. Was always thought it was goofy and weird. I, but then I saw some people, young people, go from dying to unbelievable. And I thought, what, what, uh, there's nowhere else in medicine that that happens. I, I, what's happening? I want to know more about this. And so I started digging in a little deeper. And then the director asked me to be the assistant director. This is now 1990 also, as other things are, you know, 
percolating along. And uh, six months later, he quit. And all of a sudden, I'm in the driver's seat. I'm running a program. And I really had to get my board certification and get my expertise up at that point. And uh, it took about 10 years to really craft that program the way I thought it should be. And and you've seen a lot of those people on Celebrity Rehab. You yeah. Bob and Shelly, those are my staff. Those yeah. are Sasha, these are my people. Treatment of addiction was a kind of a labor of love. You, first of all, it was a very unusual job for an internist to have. Yeah. It's usually a psychiatrist has that job. So I kind of clung to it. Like, this, I'm never going to see this again. And I enjoyed working in the team so much. I mean, never really made much money doing it. It was not a place to make a living, but it was a calling. Yeah. And um, so I loved that. So where was I? So now would you hear about would you hear about radio and medicine? What would you like to hear well, about? Well, I'm curious. <laughs> Those how things were going simultaneously. Things, yes, like how does this all come together to create Loveline? Because that's well, that was where, Loveline. The radio show I was telling you about. But like Loveline, like we knew it. Like, In the nineties. Yeah, like I'm watching it. You're so, with Adam. Like okay, how does so, all that happen? So we're doing it now five nights a week. The guy I was doing it with then was a guy named the poor man, and he sort of torched out. He got suspended and then got angry with me for not coming with him. Though the station told me they would sue me if I, and my wife told me she would divorce me if I were that stupid. <laughs> oh, and I was trying to convince him that we'll get it, we'll get through this, just cool out. He ended up suing everybody, including myself. And that was the end of it. Uh, the At that point, they had me in there with Ricky Rackman. If you tried too young to remember him, he was on MTV at the time. Television producer showed up. Television producers uh, said, we want to make a TV show out of this. I'm like, all right, how do you do that? I understand what that is, but go ahead, I'm interested. Sounds fascinating. Ricky couldn't make a deal with them, so they turned to me and went, who do you want to be the co-host? And I was like, I, I, I don't know anything about any of this. No, I just deal with whoever they give me on the radio, and I try to give good information out. And... <laughs> Uh, you know, it was, it was by that point also on the radio, you know, my addiction um, experience was becoming very useful because the addiction stuff was starting to really accelerate. All the trauma stuff was coming in, you know, the childhood trauma was really getting to be commonplace. And so my experience in the psychiatric hospital was very useful to be able to help these kids and things that we were talking to on the radio. They turned to me and they said, who do you want to do the show with? And uh, I'm like, I have no idea. <laughs> but I went out running I can show you the spot I was in. And I thought, oh, that guy we had up on the show one night who I would, I would, he, they gave him a shift in the, in Saturday afternoons. And I used to, or actually Saturday mornings. And I used to time my nursing home rounds with his breaks because I thought he was so interesting and funny. So I could hear him talking to callers and things. I said, I, and he came up on the show one night about three months before this question as Mr. Burcham. He was Mr. Burcham on the radio with me. And I thought, I get that bit that Adam Corolla guy has got the sensibilities for this. And I called management and they go, oh, you know, he'd been brought up somebody else. He, interestingly enough, at that moment was in New York with the sports guy, Jimmy Kimmel, mm -hmm. uh, and Kevin and Bean, which was the morning yep. show came right then, covering the MTV Video Music Award. Okay. <laughs> And this was like a dream come true for him. He's a poor kid from North Hollywood. He had a per diem. His best friend Jimmy was with him. I mean, this is unbelievable. And they're like, hey, come back to Los Angeles for a screen test. And he's like, I'm not going to get it. What's Mark DiCarlo doing? Come on. I don't want to. They coerced him to come back. We did very well in this screen test. And they were like, okay. Yeah. And they they told us both, you know, we'll come back on Saturday. We'll do a pilot, which I don't know really how that worked. And uh, they put us in a makeup booth Saturday morning and they said, work out your relationship. We'll start filming in an hour. 
and we didn't know each other at that point. And I remember after about nine hours of filming that day, the stage manager came up to us and said, how many years you guys been working together? And we went, no, cool. no, this, this morning. And we both thought, oh, that probably means something. Yeah, that's cool. And so that relationship on that pilot is the one you see. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more. All built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. Debit card users, listen up. You've worked hard for your money. Now it's time to make it work even harder for you. With Discover Cashback Debit, everyone can get cash back on everyday debit card purchases. That's right. Earn on things like gas, groceries, and even that midday latte. And to top it off, there are no fees, period. Yep, that means you won't be charged fees on your checking account. Transaction eligibility and terms at discover.com slash cashbackdebit. Discover Bank, member FDIC. There's more to this story. You want me to tell Yeah, the yeah, I'm here for all of it. So, oh, there's so much detail. <laughs> and that show, that show initially was distributed by an organization called New World, who had some bunch of television stations they own. New World at that point was going to syndicate us through Fox Network. So it was a Fox late night network show with real stories of the Highway Patrol and Access Hollywood. Those okay. were the three shows that were being distributed. Okay. This is 1995. All of a sudden, we were seven shows in, these shows have been lost, seven shows into production. And Fox bought New World so they could own their television stations and canceled all new programming. So we went from a show that was in production had cleared 90% of the country for a, a network late night show uh, out of production. All yeah. of a sudden gone. This is TV. And uh, three months later, MTV picked it up and said, all right, we're doing it again. So yeah. that's how we ended up on MTV. And MTV became such a hit so fast, the radio station then brought Adam in and then it was able to be syndicated because Adam was... It was yeah. just me and Adam at that point. Yeah. And we did that for like 11 years. That's sort of where my awareness of you starts. We mm -hmm. talked about this and the uh, thing that we did before. All yep. of us were kind of saying that watching Loveline was naughty. It was taboo. It was like mm -hmm. if my parents had known that I was sneaking that show, I would have been murdered. <laughs> And I'm not, <laughs> not literally, <laughs> but I would have gotten in a lot of trouble because of what was content. Yeah, beautiful yeah. in that it was so open and you never made anyone feel weird yeah. for asking oh, no. anything. And this was my, the, my, some of the notions I had when I went up there in 1984 with my textbooks was God, this material. I remember thinking to myself, this material, meaning infectious diseases and genital functioning and age, it's, it's not that hard. Right. And we at that point it was shrouded in all these Latin terms. You know, even a yeast infection was called manilia. And right? <laughs> yeah. And maniliasis, maniliasis, and and we called them venereal diseases, all these weird and I was like, 
You need to understand it. It's not that hard. I understand what you're doing because I was, I'm 24 now and I was 18 a couple right. of years ago and I know what's going on. Uh, we need to talk about this. We, we were the first people to talk about safe sex and stuff like that. And so we just became this safe place to answer, ask your questions. And there was no internet. There was no place that you could not go anywhere you're right. else. There I don't was think nothing. about that. That you today, you're like, this looks weird. You could look yeah. that up. You on could look the everything internet. up. But, you know, I still do After Dark. You know, the, your mom's yeah. house show. And it's amazing to me how bewildered people still are. Wow. They can get all the information, but they just don't know what to do with it. They can't contextualize it. They can't make sense of it. And so they do still need a, a hand kind of yeah. guiding them. But in the, back in those days, in the 90s, and, you know, from where I came from, the 70s, there was nothing. And yeah. it was embarrassing. And the, there was a key piece of this, too, which was that the world did not yet acknowledge that adolescents and young adults were having sex. It was not right. It was not considered. So we'd had this so-called sexual revolution in the 70s, and no one None of the adults ever gave any thought to, I wonder if the kids are going to do it. I remember <laughs> right. what it was to be 17. Right. I wonder if the, right. I was the, the adolescent then. Oh, we we got the message and we took off with it. And then, then so now I'm 24. I'm like, we got to do something with this. We got to help these kids because the biology here is now becoming a problem. Absolutely. HIV and AIDS. Uh, and so that was sort of my, that was my credo through all that. And then again, with the addiction and the trauma and those stuff started leaking in. Thankfully, I was trained enough to be able to do that stuff, too. Well, what kind of questions were you getting in the 90s, and how different is it to what you get today on your podcast? It, 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 very, a lot of um, remarkably similar well, stuff. A lot of uh, men worried about their genitalia, <laughs> a lot of that, and a lot of women, what's up with men? Right. <laughs> I mean, that was the main thing. Yeah. Well, I can't understand the male, and male preoccupied with his right. self and his functioning. Wow. Weird, right? And a lot of that still, uh, I would say it's a little more, I don't know what else to describe it than interpersonal. It was it felt a little more isolated back in those days. It was just, I'm struggling with this. Now it's like, I'm struggling with somebody with this. Oh, got it. A little bit of that. I think that's an improvement. <laughs> but the predominant thing that's from the mid and late 90s on, trauma. Mm. the effects of childhood trauma and the and the impact it has on relationships. Do you think that's because we have language for it now and when we have language we understand better? No, we how... went through a pandemic. Oh, There's oh. no doubt in my mind we went through a pandemic of this. And that and, and it was the, it was because I I we Adam and I knew what happened in the 70s. In the 70s, you were told children are just little adults. They're sexual beings just like adults. And the pedophiles went, yeah, they're into it, whatever mm. they're into. And it was just on at that point. Really? Oh, my God. And the physical abuse, which goes on to this day, and the abandonment and neglect was profound all the way through the 90s, to be fair. And yeah, this was, it was Wait, on. So I've never heard anyone talk about this before. You feel like this was like really specific to oh, a time period. Oh, 100%. And not that it doesn't go on. It's yeah, still good, of course. But it was, it was a, a crazy pitch for a while. So, and by the way, people that abuse children don't abuse one child. Right. So it had exponential. And it's, you know, I'm not saying that every child that's abused become an abuser. It's not true. But a certain percentage do. Yeah. And when they do, they do it to many. Right. So this thing had exponential growth built into it. Right. And nothing stopping it. And total abs total abject denial about it. Much the way you're wondering about it. Yeah. People then were like, oh, no, you're just talking about it. You're just aware of it now. No, it was on. Wow. and it, And it hurt. Because I... If you had bad enough drug addiction that you needed to see me, there was nearly a hundred percent probability of multiple childhood traumas. Absolutely, it, it wasn't until the the Kaiser Adverse Childhood Experience scales 
that people actually already started talking about it. Right. That was late 90s, early 2000s. Like, oh, adverse childhood experiences seem to be affecting medical and psychiatric health. Huh. I, it blew me away. It took, took till that. And even today, they're not talking about with the depth that they should be. Do you feel like, I mean, the medical community became aware but do you like do you feel like the tide shifted at all like did parents become aware like what was that shift the shift is that parents became more um the the parents had been subjected to that became hyper vigilant Mm. rather than whoa okay yeah yeah. that's yeah because it's like you want the opposite of what you had right especially when it's traumatic like that wow i've never thought of it in those terms before and definitely have never heard anyone say that Mm. That was something you were experiencing, like crazy. A, wow! Like crazy. It, it got to the point we because we would have the kinds of conversation you and I are having right now. Adam and I got so frustrated with that. We 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 could tell from we listened to voices and we could we would feel you know I, I developed a strategy which is something you develop sort of as a as an object in therapy and as as somebody doing therapy. You listen with your whole body. Yeah. Right. You you how you react feel. You don't just listen with your ears. You listen with your whole body. And when we had just voices, we would have to really concentrate and see how they made us feel. And when people had childhood traumas, we could tell within the first 10 seconds. Wow. We would know. And so we started betting. We'd pull it, we turned the mic off and go, all right, a buck. Yeah. What age did that happen? Not did it happen, what age? Wow. And we could, and I had, a, I had an ability where the quality of the voice, it's just the way it was. Would remind me of a certain age. age it would I could come just to you. hear it. Yeah. I could just oh, that's that happened at eight. I could just she still oh, sounds like yeah. an eight. And so we were right ninety percent of the time. Wow. And we sort of started betting to make that point that we could really predict it with great accuracy. Also, people started getting treatment for sexual uh, trauma, oh, okay. and those people started recovering and talking about it and helping other people. And it started. And it started the whole battleship turned in the other direction. Well, I'm just curious, what would be the age today? Of those children you were seeing experience that trauma? Uh, 40s. Okay. Yeah. So in your 40s today, yeah. that sort of age group yeah. was... Ex- yeah. I mean, I definitely... I'm going to turn 40 next month. Yeah. And I definitely can think of people within my decade that I saw that so often. I mean, you you won't see it so much now. You do. Like, I'm interviewing this, the uh, Florida Surgeon General tomorrow, Latipo. He was sexually abused, turns out. Wow. And so I'm gonna we're gonna get into this conversation right. with him. And he's you can tell the way he carries he's had lots of treatment. He's yeah. fine. And you can recover from this. That's yeah. the point. And and if you if you don't get treatment, it, it will it will leave a gigantic impact on you and your life. Absolutely. Huge. I've never heard someone say this and it feels so important. And I'm now curious if people are having this conversation or you no, feel like you're not no, seeing it. I, I, I remember doing interviews with television stations in the 90s and early 2000s. And at that point, I remember this and people were you know, clutching their pearls. We started seeing an uptick in the late 90s of child on child sexual abuse. Yeah. Because these victims didn't, yep. didn't have boundaries, didn't know. They just do this. Right. And, uh, you know, look at the Shows that you know, we haven't talked about celebrity rehab yet, but that came later, and and that show all all of them had trauma. You, right. You'll see it, particularly the sex addiction show we did. You'll see it there. It's like crazy. God, it's wild. Have you? I feel like this is your world, so you would know. Are you familiar with IFS and how do you IFS therapy? And are, do you know Dizzy about Mago the, therapy? What, do you, what is um, that? So in 
integrated family systems. Yes. And this idea that you work with different parts of yourself, which essentially it reminds me of when you talk about being able to tap into that Mm -hmm. age is kind of when you get frozen Mm -hmm. at certain ages in Mm -hmm. childhood and that part of you Mm -hmm. still thinks it's that age. And I'm wondering if that's what the resonance you're picking up in someone's voice. So I am uh, deep in the world of interpersonal neurobiology, it's called. And interpersonal neurobiology ex- has mechanistic explanations uh, of the brain and, cent- and, and central and autonomic nervous system and how this works. And in a, in a hand-sweeping way, let me just say, essentially what happens to trauma is that piece, it's mediated through the vagus nerve, mm-hmm. uh, that piece that is traumatized essentially separates from the rest of your brain. Uh, and that piece is no longer integrated or, re- or regulated by the, the larger system. It's separate. Because we can't emotionally handle... It, it's literally shattering. It yeah. shatters the upper limits of the child's capacity to regulate, and so it gets kind of pulled over, pushed over here. And again, this is a sort of a cartoony version of what, what happens biologically. Uh, and then it becomes, strictly speaking, something that fades in memory. And so the part, the adult will say, I don't think about that anymore. It doesn't bother me. And yet that peace is there. The body is constantly there with this part of the brain expressing itself. Yeah. And it expresses itself through emotions that are seem odd and dysregulated, it also through attractions, like I'm a tra- I want my and it needs to get it needs to be heard and get its needs met, and it does it through ways that sort of affect people's mental health essentially, yeah. and so things like EMDR and those sorts of therapies are about getting that part reintegrated with the rest of the brain so it can be regulated as a whole. Yeah, if you haven't read it yet, uh, no bad parts. Yeah, is incredible, okay. and I feel like is a this is all a, the same stuff. It's all the same. It's stuff. all the same stuff. Now, now yeah. finally. People are, you know, Vessel Bandicoot because his body keeps the score. And, and you know, since Vessel came, Vessel came around and these Alan Shore and Stephen Porges, these guys, these are my heroes. You know, these, they've been around for 15 or so years really entering the mainstream. And so most people are now kind of aware of this stuff. And they're at least aware that trauma is a really serious thing and there's treatment for it. Do you feel like that's what grounds you in compassion for every kind of person? Is that understanding that there is no way doesn't matter what you're doing it comes from a place of trauma if you're a drug addiction if you're an alcohol like that it that's always at the root of it well there's a lot packed into that question so, <laughs> so let me just let me just start about the let me do with the root let, let me do the root part um if you have bad enough addiction that you need to see me you had childhood trauma. Yes, yeah. But childhood trauma isn't always at the root of addiction. Right, okay. Absolutely. It's kind of the rocket fuel. And I take care of very, very sick people. And so for sure it's there with, with me. They can be very unpleasant. Trauma survivors yeah. and addicts too. But I I I I know they're suffering, I know they're sick, and, and it, I get to see them on the other side. Mm. I get to see them when they're recovering, and they're so glorious. You can't even imagine how thrilling it is to see them. And I and I have that hope for everyone because I've learned I can't predict. I can't tell who's going to make who isn't, but I know it's there. And so it gives me immense uh, patience, and, and I know they're suffering. Yeah. There are kinds of patients I don't do very well with. I don't do very well with paranoids. It's like schizophrenics and things. I just don't. I just... I do very well with trauma survivors. Yeah. Just, you know, we we as an instrument, you know, we have fittedness with the patients and there's things we do well and things we don't not so well yeah. with. My my partner, uh, I had another physician partner, 
did great with those patients. So his things was the bipolars and the paranoids, and my thing was all the borderlines and the sociopaths. And together we made a team, and that's, that's what made it work. Yeah. So wow, yeah. oh my gosh, the the trauma piece is still. I'm going to be trying to wrap my mind. Yeah, around go ahead. I just, I can't. I can't believe I've never heard someone say that this was a pandemic well, or, or even that there was a, a rise in it. And of course there was. And it's hard to, it's hard to document it, right? Yeah. Uh, it, it's, it's hard because there was so much other childhood trauma and it still yeah. is. Yeah. Abandonment, neglect, physical abuse. It's just all over the place. And it's, it's hard to tease out one from the other and, and you know they they got very up the road of false memories, and so that there was a there was a preschool scandal here before you were born, probably, where a bunch of kids were sort of coerced into reporting sexual abuse, and maybe it didn't really happen. And then the whole issue of false memories came up, and it it really put a damper on the even the content, the conversation that this was happening. It's like, oh, it's all made up. You can't tell. It didn't really happen, and it happened. Yeah. Now there are situations where it didn't, for sure. Uh, I don't fully understand those kinds of patients. Uh, I wonder if Casey Anthony was one of those people. They recently, if you saw that Casey Anthony thing I was in, she claims her dad sexually abused her. I, I don't know. I, I don't know. But m I would say the ma vast majority of my patients, it happened to them. Wow. How did you become, I mean, obviously you had this show, but how did you become the person that celebrities or high-profile people are calling in a situation I, like this? I, there was two things. One was they were on the radio with me every night, and they during the breaks they would unload their stuff on me. Oh wow! And so, and I'd go, look, if you want to call me tomorrow, we'll talk about what, what you know options and things like that. Also, I, the psychiatric hospital where I worked was it's a, another historical element here. Uh, was the was the place for Hollywood for a hundred years? It was it was wow. the turn of the twenty you know nineteen hundreds that it came into Pasadena. And Wait, is it the thing by the bridge that you can see from no, the bridge? Oh, okay. Not quite was that, that. Was that really a psychiatric hospital? No, that, that was an a urban hotel. Legend? That okay. was a hotel. <laughs> the psychiatric hospital is down the road on Del Mar. Oh, okay. It's okay. even spookier. Oh, okay. It looks, it looks okay. even weirder. Uh, but yeah, that's probably why that connection, because they yeah. do kind of look alike. Yeah. It, it would be a great psych hospital, actually. But, <laughs> but uh, it's now a, a, a federal court. So oh, okay. That's what it is now. Okay. You can see it in some movies from the 20s. Yeah. Films will come across it as a hotel. The pool was down by the Royal and stuff. Nice. It's crazy. Anyway, history. So that if you, every every happy acres that you saw in movies during the 20s, 30s, and 40s was fashioned after our hospital. Wow. It's this big, sprawling grounds with cabins and things. And these movie stars and television stars would go there for TLC. There were a lot of alcoholism. It was not, it was a museum of psychiatry when I got there. I mean, a museum. Wow. Psychosurgeries, insulin shock therapy, all kinds of crazy Holy stuff. Holy crap. Uh, and what year was this? 85. It was all left over from the 50s. It's wow. still, they still, they were impaired. I mean, they were the psychosurgery patients. The, I mean, they were done. Um, they needed custodial care. I am taking my four children away this weekend to go skiing. And I think if you're a parent like me, you understand how important it is to have a kitchen available to you when you have four kids, which is why Airbnb is always the place that I head to just make the vacation easier. And I have always used Airbnb as a place to stay, whether it was for work or family or a girl's weekend. But more and more, my friends are using Airbnb in a totally different way. 
as a business, as a way to invest in property and earn money for it. While you're away, your home could be an Airbnb. Hosting can easily fit into your lifestyle and it's a great way to earn some extra money. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Almost every morning of my life, I have oatmeal. Seriously, during the winter, having something hot in the morning really makes a big difference in my day. Quaker has been a trusted name in oatmeal for over 145 years, which means they've been milling oats since before the invention of the zipper, the stop sign, or ballpoint pens. Quaker has something for everyone, whether it's old-fashioned or quick oats that are good for cooking or baking. And while a ton of things have changed, the good stuff remains the same. Quaker, getting up to some good since 1877. Look for Quaker Oats at your local grocery store. Guys, no two listeners of the show are exactly alike, which means that no two vacations you take are going to be exactly alike either. And if you're looking for a place that will serve all of you, Texas has a vast landscape of cultures, regions, destinations, and activities that allow for an infinite number of different travel experiences. I love Texas so much, I moved my family there for five years. Because here's the deal, Texas has it all. Are you a beach person? We got you. If you love a rugged vacation, not my jam, but there's plenty of campgrounds, hiking trails, and state parks galore. My favorite part about Texas? The food. It is the thing I miss the absolute most. Whether you love barbecue or Tex-Mex or just want to be in cities that take their food very seriously. You can enjoy live music, visit internationally recognized art museums, and check out thrilling cowboy experiences. Visit TravelTexas.com slash get your own to get the only trip to Texas that matters. Yours. That's TravelTexas.com slash get your own. Any event, uh, I saw all the misadventures of psychiatry. I, I get the, you know, when I walk by those Scientology buildings that are condemning psychiatry, I go, oh, let's, you know, they were trying, yeah. but you're not so far <laughs> off. Right. Um, but it had always treated the movie stars and things. I mean, W.C. Fields died there. My little chickadee was blocked in the rose garden out in front of his cabin. Wow. And, and you know, silent film stars were kept there late in life. Just, I mean, it was, it was always a place where celebrities went. I, How crazy! I, I don't really want to name names, but I took care of some very, very high-profile yeah. people, and they just kept sending them. I think the main reason. And this was not related to Loveline. I, I would sometimes start referring people from a Loveline to us as the quality of our program went up. But initially, uh, the reason they came to us was it was extremely discreet. No one ever find out about somebody going to Los Encinas Hospital. Ever, mm -hmm. ever, ever. And so that's kind of why they came. How much does 
this is probably another big loaded question, but how much do you feel like the Hollywood machine mm. plays into adding to the trauma or creating yeah. an environment that brings out possibly people's worse or yeah. their trauma? So obviously there's drugs and alcohol and sex and stuff, which not good for my patients, right. <laughs> not right. helping. But the number one problem uh, over the years as I treated more and more of these folks, number one problem was they're gratified by their work. They love their work. They make a lot of money for a lot of people, and those people want them back at work right away. Yep. And that is the problem. Yep. To me, I always point people towards Robert Downey Jr. Mm -hmm. Robert Downey had terrible opiate addiction, mm. ended up in prison, took whatever time he needed to get sober, which was like four years. Right. People forget this. He was, he just, and he contemplated never working again. He did not, he was not motivated so I could go back to work. He was motivated to get sober. Yep. And he didn't contemplate anything else for years. I I, I know Robert, and, and this is what he was doing. It's why he was sober. And then Iron Man. Right. Right? And, and, so, and by the way, he didn't go right to Iron Man. He did a couple of other yes. little films. Remember uh, Kiss oh. Kiss Bang Bang and those yep. things? I was talking to him when he was, was that one. Anyway, he did a yeah. couple of little films, and and uh, he, he was taking the direction of his sober team. Like, could I don't do too much? You know, try it, see how it does, doesn't destabilize you, keep the priority of your recovery. And the guy's miracle. Incredible. Incredible. And yeah. and just for listeners who don't remember, I remember when he was a man, it was news. He broke into somebody's How? child's yes, bedroom. bedroom. Yes, when, slept in their bed. In their crib. Oh, God, I didn't know in that. In their crib, if I recall I, correctly. And yeah. now, and now, I mean, there was a point when Iron Man was at, he was the highest paid actor in the world. Like I'm, I have so much, I'm so proud of him. That story is yeah. amazing. And it's because he contemplated never working again. Right, what's wild, and you have such a closer inside look of this, mm -hmm. but I have friends who are, celebrities yeah. and watching that happen again and again there is zero concern from managers and agents and it, how they're doing emotionally lots of talk right but unwilling to bring the axe down right because it is a lot of money that ends up riding on an individual human if you get and, big enough and so what they will say is treat a lot of musicians and so musicians they'd, they'd say we'll get them a sober coach we'll put security guards around them right we'll do a little little right that's not recovery. Right. That's Or that's what I experienced with friends is like, oh, we'll get them on benzos. Oh. Because then well, that if, was that right. was the that was the uh what's his name from uh, Soundgarden? Um oh Christ. Chris Cornell. Chris oh, okay. Cornell. <laughs> Died of a benzo oh. opiate, you know, benzo overdose primarily. Really? Um his his wife is still mortified about it. It's, mm. still, it's just ugh. And a cardiologist was giving him Right. Big dose of benzodiazepine. Security guard was giving it to him. What's the big deal? You know, and that's it. Mm. Uh, uh, the benzo thing still goes on. For listeners who aren't familiar with the dangers mm. of benzos, mm. can you walk us through Xanax? Well, yeah. it's, okay, so it's Valium, us, yeah. Xanax, Clonopin, Ambien, anything that ends with a PAM in, okay. its, in its generic name. Uh, they are GABAergic sedatives. They are... Very good, very effective. Their hypnotic version will make you sleep, and then there's an anti-anxiety medicine that will work. They're not meant for more than a few days of use, right. not more than two weeks. Right. And I just I want to let's not rush by that because I feel like listeners, Xanax, everything you just said. Let, let me let me 
qualify it because you never say always and never in right, medicine. Right. There are circumstances where something severe psychopathology may necessitate you taking some of these things on a regular basis, carefully monitored, mm. carefully monitored. But know that if you come off more than a milligram of Xanax, well, more than a milligram of Xanax, more than a milligram of, of uh, Ativan, more than a, mil- a couple of milligrams of Clonopin, you're going to be very sick for a long time. It takes The withdrawal is terrible. Shelly from Celebrity Rehab, do you remember Shelly yeah. with the glasses? Yeah. She spent two years, she was a severe opiate addict, severe heroin addict. Wow. But then somebody put her on Xanax. She stopped it because she was trying to be a sober person and went through, I don't remember, it was one or like a long period, many months, 12 to 18 months of completely out of her mind, was diagnosed with borderline personality, bipolar, sociopathy, everything you can name. She got that label. And it all ended up being benzodiazepine withdrawal. She was in locked units repeatedly. So what does that withdrawal do to the body? Why is it so extreme? It, it is, is, you know, any withdrawal is essentially the opposite of what the drug is doing to you, right? Is your, your body is down-regulating in the presence of the drug. And so we withdraw the drug, all that upregulation oh, is yeah. there. I mean, that's, again, a very hand-wavy way of describing what's happening. But the, the short-acting benzodiazepines like Xanax, the withdrawal is agitation, irritability, climbing the walls, like mm-hmm. feeling you're coming out of your skin, seizure. The long-acting, like clonopin, clonazepam, that's more pernicious. It, it goes on for up to a year. Mm. And you you feel terrible for a long period of time. Now, there are ways to kind of manage it and treat it. There are these long post-acute withdrawal syndromes that people get. And they're, people know what they're doing. Doctors know what they're doing. You can kind of take the edge off a little bit. But you look back at that year and you'll go, I was not normal. Wow. I was not normal. I was not right. And uh, my daughter just read a book. I'll have her give you the book. I forget what it was on somebody, you know, now people are starting to chronicle their experience with this stuff. It's it's terrible. Right. We went through a pretty big surge where, and maybe it's still happening, but doctors were just prescribing that. Still happening. Yeah, still happening. Still happening. The the thing about the prescribing opiates, right? So people understand there's over-prescribing opiates. It's actually hard to overdose on an oral opiate. And fentanyl, the exception. Yeah. Fentanyl wasn't so much the thing in the nineties and two thousand, but but a benzo a, a opiate with a benzodiazepine, fatal combination. Wow! All my patients died of that combination, all as prescribed by a doctor. Whoa! Two different pills taken together, or there's the, a medicine that combines them. No, both? they're two different. I'm taking Vicodin and Xanax. I'm taking OxyContin and Holy shit. Ambien, yeah. whatever. Wow! And the doctors still prescribe, which I can't believe. It's not. It's not lethal in the sense you're going to die immediately, but you take a little, a good dose of both those two, you're going to die. You're not going to breathe. Wow! That's what killed Prince. The opiates knocked him off his feet, but the Xanax made him stop breathing. Wow! Yeah, I know. And going back to what started our conversation of different celebrities who are surrounded by teams of people oh, yeah. who are wanting them to go back to work, and the well, there's that, and there's also causes. there's there's the more pernicious version, which I think most people are aware of, which is they have an inner circle that that insulates them from the world and consequences. Yes, Michael Jackson, he had that. Right, he died because of that. Right. Uh, I remember uh, Deepak Chopra tried to address his addiction, it was summarily dismissed and never allowed back in again. Wow. And so that's, you know, very high level of uh, celebrities are able to maintain their addiction that way. They they just dismiss anybody that talk gets near it. Right. Wants to talk about it. And that's drug addicts. That's what they do. Uh, so occasionally there's an enlightened team member that will step up and try to 
try to confront them. But the average problem, you know, with the average sort of celebrity of all stripe going back to work prematurely, not focusing on their sobriety. You also are dealing with someone who has been taught oftentimes that their value is in their performance. The value is in what they can yes, provide. Yes, and there's, you know, there's a certain amount of narcissism, you know, and it's, so it's, it's gratifying in that way. You know, it's filling the void of narcissism. A lot of trauma in celebrities, you know, a lot, a lot, a lot. I, I, right. I'm the, I have the only published literature on that because I, you know, we did inventories on people every night on the radio station because we had access. And so we uh, did narcissistic inventories and trauma inventories and substance inventories on about 250 celebrities. No one's ever done that. Wow. Because they no one has access, I guess. Or, yeah. And the each one everyone I asked, they're like, Oh, I can't I, I know I'm messed up. I can't wait to do this. This is gonna be great. Tell me what the public tell me the results. Yeah. And we were able to through modeling, we were able to show that celebrity was sort of a bid to try to deal with the emptiness and injury. And you know, it was much like those substances are. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, what do you think? Speaking of narcissism, what do you think about the word of the year being gaslighting did you hear that i did hear that yeah uh and and gaslighting itself the term has almost been changed just to lying yeah it's sort of just yeah. lying now it's not trying to make yeah. somebody feel they're not in reality right which is what it used to be uh i i've always felt it was an overused term so yeah will I, you explain what is the actual definition the, the actual of as i understand the actual definition was a reference to a movie called i think called the gaslight or oh, something really? yeah something like that where this woman was led to believe that her memories were not correct, uh, that there was, you know, I forget even what the plot was, but she was led to believe she was crazy, uh, that there was something wrong with her and her thinking. Uh, that's the gaslighting. Yeah. Just to make them believe that something is so that is not so. Right. So it's not lying. It's essentially against all odds, against proof in front of you. Correct. will keep denying and, in and order. Cre- creating a separate reality. Right. Yeah, to and make over that time, that person begins to doubt themselves Correct. and what they know Often, to be true. And really, the, in the original, really makes them crazy. Right. The well, and I feel like that's rising to interest because there's so many more conversations about narcissism. Mm. Is that something that you've noticed a rise in or at least in in conversation and in... Narcissism or gaslighting or both? Both. Oh, yeah. Narcissism has been a hot topic for a while. Right. And and I, I, you know, I wanted to put a chapter in my book about scapegoating and mobs because I felt like I, I could not find a period of history where there was so much childhood trauma and so much narcissism except pre revolutionary France. And I said, man, there's going to be guillotines. There's going to be scapegoating. I know it's going to happen. They're like, too speculative. Don't write about it. And I did a lot of research on mobs and things at the time. And I kept saying, it's going to happen. Here we are. Right. Social media mobs. Right. It's cancellation. Right. It, it happened. Wait, let's let's unpack this. Okay. So scapegoating and mobs. Mm-hmm. You saw this, uh, I believe you're referencing like the French uprising and yep. like yep. off with their heads. Yep. Screw this monarchy. Yep. And that, if you look at that period of history... The, the preceding generation, the childhood trauma was off the chain. Just look at Rousseau's history. Rousseau left five children, dragged along a sexual concubine, and left all five of her children on the, on the steps of, a, of an orphanage. And only like 20% of these children survived. And if they survived, they were physically abused, they were sexually abused. It just was, it was tons of it. They grew up to be the people that went to this. They grew up to be Josephine Bonaparte, you know, people yeah. like that. And uh, they grew up to go to the salons and things where they conceived of these revolutionary ideas. Wow. And uh, yeah. So you had this theory that we were going to go back into a time I, period. I just, I just saw that, that there was all this narcissism everywhere. 
all this childhood trauma, and I thought there's going to have to be some sort of scapegoating mechanism to deal with all this narcissistic rage, that they will get together, this would gather together and focus their aggression on somebody. And How do you see narcissism manifest inside of social media? With the mob action, well, they, the empathic failure. I, mm-hmm. I don't like I, I don't like when people throw around psychological and psychiatric terms pejoratively. These things are adapt. Everything's adaptive. Everything happens. That's because that's how we're evolved. Right. And if you're a narcissist and a fighter pilot, good. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? That you want that. Right. Uh, if you're a narcissist uh, and it's your husband. It's a little difficult. It's a little right. challenging. So it's not all good or all bad. It just has certain liabilities and assets. Right. Every single personality. If you're a brain so. surgeon, narcissism might be really great. Really <laughs> good. Really good. We if want you to think you're God. Yeah. yeah. If it's your girl, boyfriend or girlfriend, yeah, it could be tough. Uh, again, not strictly speaking pejorative, just could be tough because of the liability. And the liability is empathic failure. Meaning right? you don't have the ability to be... Empathic of others? You lose that empathy? ability in many circumstances. Got it. It's not that you don't know what it is. Sociopaths don't really ever do it. Psychopaths don't even know what it is. Narcissists do it. They just lose it easily. <laughs> they Got lose it. empath. Certainly if it conflicts with their needs, empathy goes away. And they're prone to envy. And envy is the most destructive of human emotions. If you look at every religious injunction, every religious text, it's always about envy is the horrible sin, horrible right. sin. And envy is what we are we're like dining on these days. You're and, so right. And, and let's and let me get clear for you what envy is different than jealousy. Jealousy is that dude's got what I want. Oh, fuck that guy, but I but I but I'm gonna work hard to get just like him. Right. Envy is Fuck that guy! I'm gonna take him down. Mm. He's got. I bring. Got to bring him down to my it's level. The tallest building in town. There's two ways to have the tallest building in town: build the tallest building or knock down the other building. Exactly. Yeah. And envy is about knocking it down to your wow. level. That you you're exposing me to something by having success. I have to knock you down to your right. level. Which to a non-narcissist is the oddest, the oddest impulse. Yeah. If you have empathy and you, it's just so weird, you should glory in everybody's success. Yes. You should, want to be like them instead we do the opposite and that's part of that scapegoating stuff again and that's aggression like we're, we're still aggression. in it too oh man. yeah yeah oh boy do you think anything's gonna shift it, the it doesn't if history is any teacher it doesn't stop till you know nobody's pure enough so it has to start eating itself which yeah. is kind of happening yeah kind of happens people are starting to become aware that like oh my word we can't yeah. We can't win at this. Like right. there is nobody's no, pure enough. Nobody's good yeah. enough. Right. We're all yeah. yeah. That's right. Wow. So there we are. That's oh the world my. we're in. To me, being healthy is really grounded in nutrition. Honestly, what I eat and what my kids eat is super important to how we live our lives. It's why I love a company like Thrive Market. Because Thrive Market carries brands with the highest quality ingredients and sourcing methods. They restrict hundreds of ingredients across their food and cleaning categories. So when I go online and I use their on-site filters, I can figure out exactly my lifestyle needs and trust that what I'm getting from Thrive Market is what I want to take into my body. When you join Thrive Market, you're also helping a family in need with their one-for-one membership matching program. You join, they give. 
You can join in on the Savings with Thrive Market today and get 30% off your first order plus a free $60 gift. Go to thrivemarket.com slash rach for 30% off your first order plus a free $60 gift. That's T-H-R-I-V-E market.com slash rach thrivemarket.com slash rach. This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Plus, auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Quote now at Progressive.com to see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. This is the million-dollar question as we like get to the end is how did the pandemic mm. the most recent pandemic exacerbate this it, it brought it all into it all, yeah so so i think i'm trying to put it all together now because i'm sort of a student of these things i think there was an obama derangement there was certainly a trump derangement yes and then there was covid right that these three experiences yeah uh certain people were just exercised about it mm. and, and, it, and it almost hit different populations you know each one you yeah. know trump derangement hit with different population than yeah. the obama derangement i mean i used to get weird people with obama derangement used to send me all kinds of weird horrible accusations about who president obama was right. and then the trump derangement you saw it everywhere right and then covid and covid so covidians and covidians deranged about well, it's, a, it's a comedic oh, we're using okay. a little comedic okay. license okay. i was like is it's, that a term no no okay. it's, it's a term that is thrown around got but, it but it is it's just the excesses that people got into obsessing around over that person these 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 experiences of being having that guy as president or that guy as president or this terrible illness lurking around it just right put a put a freaking burner under everything and, and we're it's still, still going we're, it's, it's still, still going that's the thing this studio you're in i just i started doing it in the beginning of covid to try to calm everybody down right just try to let's just talk about what we know let's get yeah. to the facts stay yeah. in reality calm down i felt like the french underground for a couple yeah. of years really i'm not kidding and uh i don't know we're going through another wave of it right now right well and i think that it's one of the most controversial things you can say on social media is like take a breath i know it'll be okay i know and i i don't know if i've ever said anything like i have pissed people off in a lot of ways over the course of my career but that was one of the biggest things was the yeah. day of the election yeah. i had done a story and i was like just because everyone was yeah. freaking out. Yes, that's just, that, the, the bottom line is, I understand. Right, I, I get of course. it. But it doesn't make things better. And it's not going to help you in this moment. Doesn't it's not going to help your kids. It's going to make just, everything worse. Just like everything. take a breath. Yeah. It'll, you know, not, it's yeah. not that it's not serious, yeah. but it's not worth you having a heart attack right now. <laughs> well, if it and is worth having a like, heart attack, yeah. <sighs> How yeah. could you say, know. you know, don't tell me to calm down. This is like, I'm like, okay. That's wow. what I had on COVID for right. people to try to calm down. Right. Because I could see with the fomenting yes. of panic. And I yes. knew it was going to be a disaster. Right. That it was going to 
harm people yes. more in addition to the COVID harming them. Right. You're going to have this reaction harming people too. And now suicide is up, drug yeah. addiction is up, loneliness is up, relationships are messed up. It's just, it's all cause mortality is up 10% above what it should be. I, why is that? I don't know. It's it's a disaster. Yeah. And like post pandemic, now we're dealing with, I mean, I was going to say here in the U.S., but honestly, it's all over yeah. the financial ramifications. Oh my God! Who knows? This. Yeah, right. It's pushed all these people into poverty. Right. Oh my God! I mean, I just—it's breathtaking. Right. It's breathtaking. So, knowing this. Oh, what are you going to ask me? No, this is you got this. <laughs> this is an underhand softball serve for you. Is what are things that we can be doing? This isn't that easy. No, it is. I know you got some advice. I do have some advice, simple but it's not things. that easy. Yeah, yeah it's keep not it that it's not that it's going to solve problems, but there are things every single one of us can do practically yes. in our daily lives yes. that will just lower that cortisol right. a little bit. So I just was coaching up a friend of mine today who had had issues. She was saying, I don't, I don't, I'm so anxious. And we started adding up the score of what was going on right. in her life. It's like, of course you're anxious. There's a reason why you're of anxious. Of course, of course. Yeah. And so it, it is, so let's keep it simple, folks. First thing I ask you, how's your sleep? Well, it's a mess. All right, let's get your sleep right. There's things you can do. There, there's whether it's just not screens at night or quiet or closing the drapes or having structure to your sleep or not drinking caffeine or fluids late at night. Try theanine, try magnesium, try melatonin. These things yep. do work. And yep. to try these things, find what works for you. Exercise. Yes. Please, everybody. The, Every the, day. I, uh, Peter Atia is now a friend of mine, and he's a longevity specialist. Brilliant dude. And I was talking to him about, you know, come on, what is it? And I go, the diamond. He goes, he just jumped back. He almost jumped on my throat. He goes, vigorous exercise. <laughs> vigorous exercise. That's what, that's what impacts longevity. That's it. It's the one thing we can all point at. And well-being and functionality and everything. So right. vigorous exercise, right. everybody. Not doing that, you're, you're harming yourself. Relationships, mm. okay? Uh, that's a dicier piece. Uh, we are in a loneliness epidemic. Uh, relationships, I don't want to be too dogmatic about this. They can include online connection and Zoom and things. That will not be enough. Yes. You need bodies in space. We were talking about some of these mechanisms of healing trauma. We didn't really talk about the healing part. But uh, those autonomic systems and mm -hmm. bodies and how we brains heal other brains and body is brain bodies heal other brain bodies. Let's put oh, it that that's that's a cool term. Yeah, I've never heard it, that before. It, it does. It, brains heal other brains. That's how it works. Mm -hmm. And even if it's just anxiety or or life stressors, whatever it is, other lean on other related. Have the feel felt. Be open. Be present. Uh, I really do think it's important for uh, people to have same-sex friends because mm -hmm. you just experience things in a in a more efficient way together. You yeah. just, and you connect in different ways. And somebody that cares about you sitting across from you. Ideally, somebody who sees you, this is something I encourage a lot of people to do, which is don't hang out with somebody that uh, is necessarily like you always hang out with. Somebody who sees you through a new pair of glasses can be very impactful. Right. Somebody who sees you differently, who feeds back at you, but who, who genuinely cares. Though. Right. And so, maybe who knows who you are today. You know, if yeah. you, it's beautiful to have yeah. those friends from 15 Correct. years ago, but someone who comes in at this place in your life and sees this version of you. I, I love that. That That's a great refinement of this uh, because I have been a big advocate of somebody, somebody new in your life, somebody you know, different, somebody a little, little just who's not going on the same old maps that yeah. you've always set. Uh, not to diminish the ones that, that are well-established, keep them. Yes. <laughs> keep, keep them around, yes. especially right now. Um, lim limit your time on screens. It, you know. Man, I do worry a lot 
I'm sure they're going to be fine, but I do worry a lot about younger generation. Because yeah, my yeah. friends who are in their early yeah. 20s, yeah, it's the anxiety they have, the comparison that they have, the fear yep. that they have, yep. the that lack of connection, the inability, and I don't mean this disrespectfully, I say this as like a mom with concern, the inability to stay focused. Oh, interesting. Their attention oh, that's is like, and they admit it. They're like, mm. I can't do anything so, so for more than one of the ways attention is built is somebody else paying attention to you. It oh, turns that's out that's that's a part that we don't talk about very often. But the the ventrolateral prefrontal cortex is where the attentional stuff gets built by other people paying attention to you. Like we're uh, having a conversation and being the object of attention focuses you. Interesting. And it helps okay. you stay focused. Okay, that's and learn good. about focus. So, but a lot of it, you'd be object of focus a lot, and people don't do that very much. Yeah, yeah. and I have teenagers, so is this something that I can do yeah. with them? Oh, yeah. What is that model? What that looks like? Or could well, you? it's different with the males and females. They're boys. Okay, because they the, the hormones are right. You know, what age are we talking about? Uh, almost sixteen and fourteen. Okay. So they're in it. Yeah, they're there. <laughs> they're in it. Uh, yes, they will accept more of this from mom than from dad. Absolutely. Uh, and, and by the way, for the young females, 9, 10 o'clock at night, they suddenly open up. That's going to cortisol fluctuations, as you mentioned. Yeah. Uh, so you sit down on the bed and go, everything cool? Everything cool? Boys, you can't really do that. They don't like face-to-face -face so much. If it's, For dad, it literally has to be side-by-side. -side. You right. have to be doing something right. together. For mom, you can sit and, and be a focus and yeah. listen. It won't, probably won't go very long, but it's very healthy right. to, to do that. And it, I will say and it actually is better uh, with both of them. If we're in the car, we're doing... Car is the so perfect they're, place. They're, we're both car is ideal. Car, yeah. car, I recommend car all the time. Yeah. Uh, it would bring stuff up and just, you know... And, and you can even put it off another another notch by talking about somebody else. Like, yeah. Oh, I noticed Billy was having a little trouble. Is he okay? Right. Ever think about that. What's right. that? A lot of wonderment. Wonderment is a very important tool. Have you ever thought about, I wonder, mm. you know, you like you see the kids sad. I mean, you go, huh? Yeah. Everything. You wonder if everything's cool. You feel mm, yeah. be good. It's wonder, wonder, wonder. And right. uh, they'll come out with it. So you're not making any like definitive Never statements. point the finger. Right. Never start with you are anything like that. Right. Yeah. That's good. Oh, that feels that that resonates with me. Mm. Okay. Thank you for that advice. And you'll survive. And, and it'll <laughs> you, all be okay. You will survive. Yes. <laughs> so no. it's tough. It's there. Tough. I mean, I have four. Oh. Now I know. I know. Why'd you do that? You know what? <laughs> Your is a great question. That is a great question. No, it's great. It's the best. Yeah, it's, it's best. amazing and also what, so hard. What are the ages? Uh, 16, 14, 10, and 5. And how many boys and many girls? Uh the oldest three are boys, mm. and the youngest is a girl. Obviously, great. Yeah, your life will always have meaning and purpose. It's true. It's true. It's but it's having an audience with the show that is predominantly women, and mm. so many of them are moms. That is something. Harkening back to what you said earlier, that you were going through with your friend, like you have a reason to have anxiety. Yes, I feel like women especially don't give themselves enough credit for what they've gone through and what they've navigated families through in the last two years. Oh my God. Right. <laughs> like, are you kidding? Right. Uh, just, just being a mom. And I, and I always say, you know, it, it's, we want to do our job as dads and we can, you know, do a lot, offer a lot of manpower and a lot of time, a lot of whatever, but particularly younger children, I always say it's like they put a hose on mom and just suck her soul out. They yeah. want mom. <laughs> and it's yeah. it, you can't, you know, obviously it's not all children that way, but for the most part, 
it's just I need your soul. I need yes. I need it yes. constantly flowing towards me, and that doesn't really ever change. Right. Um, the good news for the boys, you know, in adolescence is they they'll be looking to dad for stuff and. Yeah, he, he can he can be we're, very helpful. Yeah, well, we hope. I actually have the kind of boys where um, I've had more conversations about things that I'm like, oh, okay, um, y- y- testicles. Let's sure. Let me yeah. Google and well, I'll circle back around. Yeah, you always. <laughs> just, that's a great way to approach it. Which no, that's always just. Do you have any questions? I'll answer them. I'll do right. the best I can. Right. And, but never, never have an agenda in your answers. Mm. Just answer the questions. Right. And then come back around and go, anything else? Yes. Nothing now? Yeah. Okay, I hope you come back when you're... Honestly, you know, some of the best yeah. parenting advice I ever got was from my pediatrician mm. when my oldest was little and started asking questions that I was like, is this appropriate? He was an inquisitive little yeah. kid. Yeah. And the pediatrician said, yes, always answer only what they ask. That's exactly right. Don't add any and, other and, and by the way, I'm so glad the pediatrician did that because for a long time, they were not, they did not understand this. Right. But that is absolutely tr- true. There's a caveat. Make sure you understand what they're asking. That's real. Yeah. That is because, so real. <laughs> because, because when my daughter was like five, she asked, do you and mommy sex? And I was like, <gasps> it took my breath away. And I asked the right question. I go, well, what do you mean? Yeah. She goes, I don't know, kissing. I go, oh, yeah, we do yeah, that. We do we kiss. We do that. And was, she was delighted with <laughs> right, the answer, delighted right, with the conversation. Right. So you're you like, that could have sure. been bad. As opposed to like, <laughs> all right, now it's time for a plumbing lesson. I've been waiting for this. It's like, oh no, don't do that. Don't do that. Right. <laughs> so. Well, I also heard years ago that your youngest kid is the age, is like the knowledge age of the oldest. Like if... Oh, that's interesting. So, like, if my ten-year-old son is in a house with two teenage boys, yeah. he's going to have he's knowledge gonna, like a teenage boy. He's going to at least speak. Well, this is another piece. They don't understand. They they understand things only at their age level. Yes, yes. And pre-puberty is a different processing system. They don't fully. They understand the words. They get. The, they think it's kind of funny. They understand what they're talking about. They want to be a part of it. They don't get it. Right. And, and you have to kind of keep it on their level. Yes, and, yeah. And to go beyond that is traumatizing for them. Yeah. Once again. It's like too much. Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. I love that we've gone all over the place today. That's great. I mean, I know. I've learned so much, Good. which I anticipated. I, I, I appreciate you coming out here and doing yes, this. Yes, so of fun. course. Oh, my gosh. I, I knew we'd be great, too. Yeah. I knew we'd have fun because yeah. we, we chatted on this thing we yeah. were doing. I was like, oh, my God, we've got to get together. No, this was a gift. Yeah. And I would talk to you for three hours if I wasn't starving and really excited to go okay. eat dinner <laughs> with my boyfriend. <laughs> Fair enough. So for listeners who want to dig into the work, they want to listen to your podcast, like tell them all okay, the places I have, they can I live find in it. Ver- I, I have made my life through all these experiences. We didn't even get into celebrity rehab right. and how that happened. That'll be our next yeah. podcast. And I've always just sort of been doing explorations, trying to find things that people present to me to do good, to have an impact through media, to have positive impact. I've only recently admitted to myself I'm doing media. Seriously, like, it's another part of my story. I was like, I, 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 I just not, like, not do, me. It, do it on Saturdays and Sundays. Just leave me alone to practice medicine. But in about 2010, 11, I'm like, okay, you're, you're okay. You're doing television. But as a result, I sort of explore lots of things and I and people tend to put me in environments that make me uncomfortable. That seems, tends to be where I'm most effective, interestingly. So on the heels of Loveland, we have a new incarnation of that. It's called Dr. Drew After Dark. It's on your mom's house platform, which is Christina P. and her, her husband, Tom Segura. 
and that show is totally inappropriate and it's a, <laughs> and it's a new ver- it's people asking the love line questions yeah and so i'm still getting the same old stuff yeah. there it has a new kind of bite to it but it's same old stuff when you cool. get right down to it number two i'm doing a streaming show out of this studio tuesday wednesday and thursday three o'clock pacific time some of the time I'm just answering questions, same old stuff. Wednesday, we do a show with another colleague who has some very strong sort of feelings about COVID and what happened. We tend to interview people that have been silenced mm-hmm. just to see what they have to say, because mm-hmm. I, I really wonder what their opinions are. And I've learned a lot from talking to them. A lot of interesting guests. It's sort of more COVID uh, day and date kind of stuff. I mean, today we talked a little bit about the, the Twitter files and stuff like that. And then I have an Adam and I are still together. We do the Adam and Dr. Drew show three days a week. Incredible. And we do, and I do my own podcast with that, that solo podcast I do at his place is more interviewing kind of medical people and things like that. There are people that interest me and just want to talk to them for an hour. And uh, that's a lot of fun. So the, it's the four programs that you can find. And you They're still all practice very different. medicine. Do a lot less than I used to. I don't do the psychiatric stuff anymore. I don't run a psych... Pro- I, I don't... All the leadership stuff I used to do, I don't do anymore. I just Got do it. outpatient general medicine. But you have done therapy for the workaholism? Oh, or? my God. I was in therapy. <laughs> another, another topic oh for our next thing. I was in therapy for 11 years. Were you? Yeah. And it was great. Yeah, <laughs> it was necessary. Honestly. And it really helped me. And I could... Uh, Say no, finally. Right. It's one of the things I couldn't do. Right. And I had boundaries, and I could be so much more goddamn empathic. Yeah. Because my boundaries were clean all the time. That's and awesome. so it made me a much more effective caretaker. So, Dr. Drew, Here we are. thank you so much. Thank I really you. appreciate it. This was incredible. It was great. Thank you. The Rachel Hollis Podcast is produced by me, Rachel Hollis. It's edited by Andrew Weller and Jack Noble.